This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And uh, now that skateboarding is about to become an Olympic sport, the city of Melbourne appears to have a new appreciation for it and hatching plans to build more dedicated skate parks in the city. And skating's pretty much you know, adaptable to urban environments. It doesn't always need infrastructure, but they do get moved on. Otherwise, um, you might have remembered uh, the the popular park for skating in Carlton that was completely re-landscaped by council to make sure that no one could possibly skate there anymore. Uh, to talk about the new attitude towards skating uh, from the Melbourne City Council is Dr Dave Nichols. He's Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne. He came here on his skateboard and it's good to see yo, you. Yo, Carlia. <laughs> I came here yeah, on my say yo because you're on a skateboard. Well, you do. Unfortunately, getting on a skateboard makes you say yo. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, well... When did when did when did yo last get on a skateboard? Well, look, I I actually I, I I used to ride a skateboard on my stomach, so there you go. Um, when I was a kid, and it's just the most dangerous thing you could possibly You're the do. The biggest dag. <laughs> I know. Well, I grew up in the hills of Eltham, and that is quite a terrifying way to go down a hill. I can tell you now. Uh, but Melbourne City Council, uh, because it's I think it's because it's an Olympic sport now, mm. want to build more mm. infrastructure for skaters. Mm. Yes, they do indeed. And, uh, the, you know, I don't, I mean, the the Olympic thing is, uh, to me, is a little bit of a (sighs) furphy. But you know what? This document that, um, this, uh, they have a draft plan out. This draft plan for, um, draft skate Melbourne plan 2017 to 2027. I mean, I take my hat off to the person that wrote this thing because I think, and and it's a shame that their name isn't on it because I think that they're, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant piece of, you know, it's, if you're going to talk about a document that includes as many people as possible, you know, and brings them on board, no pun intended, um, then you are, you really, uh, you know, you, you really got to look at this kind of, this kind of thing is, it's beautifully done. I mean, it looks great as well. But it's, um, yeah, of course the Olympic thing is, I mean, that's sort of like a, um, you know, that knocks the whole, the whole business into a cocked hat, doesn't it? It's like, well, whatever you think of skating, it's going to be Olympic sport and, you know, nobody doesn't like the Olympics, right? And we've got champions homegrown here in Melbourne know, and all exactly, that sort of stuff. Exactly. So all of that, all of that stuff. Skating injects vibrancy, economic benefits, performance and culture into the city. I'm not sure what the economic benefits are, but. Gear. Okay. Oh, because people buy stuff. Yeah, all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, or it can make spaces safer by increasing natural surveillance at all hours of day and night. Why not? Oh, that's a new perspective. And it's regarded as a sustainable transport method. Well, that was the bit that actually, because I have also read through this uh, draft plan. It's a 10-year plan Mm. for how Melbourne's going to become more skater-friendly. And the sustainable transport option, I think, is a new one. It is. It is. And I went looking at the the actual um, road rules for skateboarding and uh, I did not realise that you're actually allowed to ride your skateboard across a level crossing. There you go. Mm. Um, and I think you can use bike paths with them. I've certainly seen that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, prob- no, I think I think so. I think you're correct. Well, yeah. Let's uh, let's it's got four let's, wheels. let's just say that we're not um, <laughs> we're not legal. Um, you know, can we talk we about? We can't be held to any of this no, advice. No, we don't know yet. what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. um, but can we talk about inclusive planning? Because mm. this word "inclusive" is actually mm. being used all the way through this mm. this skating document and. Inclusive for who? I, I suppose yeah, that well, question to me was still there at the end. Uh, I, I was sort of reading this 
with the mind that those that used to live on the Lincoln Reserve Park in Carlton that didn't like the skaters yeah. being across the road yes. uh, didn't feel like the skaters in that park were being inclusive. But from yes. the perspective of those that were using it as a as a place to skate, I imagine it was the reciprocal, you know, the the opposite feeling that the local neighbourhood wasn't appreciating their their sport that was you know perfectly well i think that was pretty obvious that the local neighborhood wasn't and also you know people who should know better really were using um various kinds of rhetoric that i think were uh just you know really it was it was a it was a poor show by the local residents in my opinion around the lincoln square uh the the kind of ideas that were being brought forward you know disrespecting a mo- the bali bombers bombing monument and stuff like that i just think that was very but also this idea of surve- surveillance uh i imagine in that scenario the idea that it's sort of passive casual surveillance of that area would have been disputed by local residents saying well actually they're the people we, we we're we worried about we're worried the local about. residents were saying that it was very uh male and that it was it was men not kids uh which you know i'm sure that's perception and and probably partially true uh and but then again so what i mean it was uh, presumably a bunch of people who all knew each other uh and were to a certain degree self-policing i would imagine that's that's my guess uh yeah so there's so there's all of that the inclusivity thing is is really really interesting and one of the things that i think is interesting about this document is that okay so we can be skeptical or uh, cynical about uh the city of melbourne uh, its approach to to this kind of this kind of stuff. I mean, there's some interesting things in here, though. At the same time, gotta stop saying interesting. Sorry, I keep saying interesting. But um, for instance, the inclusivity uh, element is they note in here that uh, of the, the the skaters that were observed by the um, possibly slightly sinister person with a clipboard standing around, just like watching what's going on, ninety five percent were male. So. You know, there there is a an attempt being made here, and it's not totally spelt out. But you know, I think uh, the that the intention is is stated is is interesting. Sorry, I said it again. In itself, that um, that they want to try and design places to make them, you know, to maybe cultivate more girls, women involved in uh, to get involved in skating. Well, my experience with skate dedicated skate rinks areas um ramps and and so forth has been pretty positive i must say i mean i've got you know young girls and when they've gone to those places you can see the entire bowl start to adapt to include the kids if there's younger kids there they give them a go they don't do terrifying tricks right in their faces and there is a real sense that it's a community Mm -hmm. that is supportive of other people participating and so i've always had a really positive response to that but i wonder if having dedicated areas which is what the city of melbourne's looking at they're not looking at enhancing the infrastructure Mm -hmm. in parks and putting you know stronger rails there for people to jump off and things like that they're they're looking at dedicated areas whether that means they that they're more likely to get a culture like that it's it's really hard to to say i'm just looking at this uh, i've got a a newspaper item um a an article by jim shembury from the from the age 1989 and there's a quote here one of the things that uh, interested me about this sorry i've said it again was um i didn't i didn't realize that in the age of 1989 they'd put the word shit in but they did um are we allowed to say shit on the radio Okay, thanks. Um, thanks. Sorry, everyone. Um, one part of skating is that it's a little bit antisocial and kids like that. They like it because it gives people the shits a bit, you know. They skate down the street. People go, get off that thing. I think kids like that a bit. Now, this is, I mean, it's the, the obvious thing is that, uh, I mean, I don't know that 
skaters necessarily think of themselves as, you know, sort of um, cool rebels necessarily. And I think they just... But it is a, a kind of a subculture and our subcultures all have these sorts of rules. And the, the idea that council is going to say, well you know have your um have your cool subculture but please go and have it in this sanctioned area that we have made for you uh i just i think that that's you know from time immemorial it's never really going to work exactly like part of the thing is you know it, it has that kind of parkour element to it it's like we do it in the we do it in the street or where we feel like it or where we see places that that suit us don't yeah. you think? Well, and also, I mean, you can see sometimes out the front of, and at the at the moment, outside the museum is a really popular it place is. for skating. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's this fantastic kind of urban infrastructure there, seating and the like. That's fantastic for jumping mm. off if mm. you've got a skateboard. But you see in lots of places where they'll put the kind of little bumps to make it very difficult for yeah. people to use certain uh, furniture and so forth for skating. And I think I've seen more of that in Melbourne than I have uh, infrastructure catering for skaters. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's there's all of these kinds, this this super prescriptive kind of stuff that goes on. It's the same, it fits, uh, the same kind of thing happens when they modify park benches so people can't sleep on them, you know. These, these kinds of things that are uh, so, you know, they really want to shape your behaviour and I suppose in a way that's, uh, that can be done in a in an effective and dare I say tasteful way, but in but this you wouldn't call that inclusive too, architecture, would you? You would not at all. No, that's a different kind of inclusivity, I guess. But yeah, that's right. I mean, it's just uh, and look seriously, I you know, you, I guess this is the kind of world where you can't make everyone happy anyway. You can't have. Um, you know, um, I just want to sit on the park bench. Oh, there's you know, twenty people riding their skateboards around me. No, nobody's. You know, neither neither side is really happy about that. I would say. Uh, so you know, in a way, those people, all those people, can't fit together. At, you know, be in the same place at the same time. And often they're not. It's half past nine here, talking with Dr. Dave Nichols about Melbourne's uh, city council's new love skating. Mm. Maybe that's exaggerating it, but there is a ten-year plan out there um, for uh, really shaping uh, the city to to fit skaters and finding more spaces for them to do their sport and mm. actually really re reframing skate skating as a sport uh in the city and i suppose uh skating dave does fit in to urban environments it's yeah, it it's does. born of it, it i mean you need those hard services to to be able to actually use such little Correct. wheels and yeah. so i think the idea that the city of melbourne should actually cater i mean for in, it is is a good one in city of melbourne's defense i mean they do they have kind of three types of space and one is a space where where those t- where skaters and non-skaters can coexist um but they they talk about them you know, defining features but they don't really talk about where these places might be and uh, uh at least not too much and what they're really looking at is making some special uh special places and i guess they're they're searching their uh, extensive uh you know within their extensive boundaries to try and find some place that, you know, nobody else wants for anything else that they can possibly give over to this use. And, it's and I mean, it's been done really well. I mean, certainly in Ballarat, they've done it really well. Mm. And I, I know a youth worker there that worked really hard to find something for the kids to do. I mean, they had a lot of problems up there, yeah. social problems, and they found on the corner of a very busy road on the way to Sovereign Hill there a corner that's sort of surrounded by... Um, roads and there's the skate ring and it's massive yeah. and really popular and packed at all hours of the day yeah. and it's 
you know, you can drive past and see your kid there. Exactly. And they don't know that you're driving past necessarily. And it's actually, to me, was done incredibly well. Mm. And I wonder that there probably are spots like that in Melbourne that can be adapted. Yeah, for sure, in the, within the city of Melbourne, yeah. I mean, City of Hume similarly has some great places like that. They've got a they've got a, a relatively recent plan for, you know, skating and BMX and stuff. And that's, you know, those places, once again, they're in prominent positions. So they're very visible. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, and I guess it's, once again, it's in the eye of the beholder whether that's an attractive thing or not. But when it comes down to it, who cares? I mean, as long as people are using it, that's the main yeah. thing. And what, I mean, before I let you go, what, what's your impression of the, the consultation process that the Melbourne City Council's used for this? Because it seems mm-hmm. pretty, uh, you know, they've spoken to a lot of stakeholders, whether they've spoken to the right ones. What, what's yeah, your and view? that's, uh, once again, I think that comes back to the, uh, that takes, uh, there has to be uh, openness on all sides there and in terms of, you know, every stakeholder has to be contributing. And once again, I think that's a problem with uh, subculture is, um, you know, once it becomes a, a, um, something that's sanctioned, it stops being so um, so great. Uh, n- nevertheless, I mean, I'm not... but that's that, And that's only a part of, I'm sure, of, of that particular group of people. The, um, there seems to be some uh, decent consultation going on here and it's kind of um it's another one of those situations which is just planning's problem from where to go which is getting to people people to conceive of uh for instance if we're looking at making a new place for this kind of activity getting people to you know imagine it uh and and contribute you know imaginatively imaginatively but realistically uh and you know actually uh get involved in the in the process at all stages as well it's not not an easy thing to bring people along in those kinds of uh, projects. No, and, and especially when, you know, some of the participants are very young as well. And, and a lot of diversity of age there as well. But, you know, on the plus side, uh, they're very committed, I think, to the to the, to the the whole thing, to the actual activity. So um, I guess there's a, there's a way of, of doing it. The other question is, um, you know, C- City of Melbourne... What role does it play in metropolitan Melbourne generally? I mean, is it a is it a leader uh, in this? You know, does it come up with the ideas? Not necessarily. Um, and uh, is it? But does it? And does it have a kind of unique status within uh, metropolitan Melbourne as well? It's it's the centre of the city. Uh, a lot of people would think about the CBD. You know, skating in the CBD. You know, is I guess in some senses an antisocial activity, uh, and is you know so. I think straight away, I don't know about you, but I, I, straight away I was like, I had a cynical attitude. I was like, oh, they're managing, you know, think about Lincoln Square, but also thinking, well, they're just trying to manage, um, you know, their own PR and trying to manage a problem. And they, you know, however, this is, as I wasn't being, um, silly about it, it's a beautifully written document. And I think it's really, it's really well done in lots of, in lots of ways. But, um, still we have that attitude to, uh, to something like the city of Melbourne because we know their, their government, you know, uh, they're set up, we know their their attitudes and we know some of the things they've done in the past. Yeah, that's right. And it's, uh, you know, that, that spot right there in Central Carton might have been a really great spot to uh, set mm. up their new skate mm-hmm. area. Exactly. Anyway, thank you so much, Dave, for Thanks. coming in. And uh, I suppose investing in a bit of skate infrastructure, if we're going for gold medals, it's probably a lot cheaper than the swimming pools for the other athletes. I hate the Olympics. It's 25 to 10 here on Triple R. <laughs>
And over the weekend, the first of the state government's rental reforms were announced. Uh, it'll soon be harder for tenants to be kicked out or be denied a property because they've got pets. Uh, longer-term lease options are now on the table and bonds are likely to go down as well, among other things. And it seems like really good news for tenants' rights, especially as nearly 30% of us now rent and we're renting for longer than we used to. But advocates want to see more changes introduced, including requirements to improve the quality of rental properties a new report out called Bringing Rental Homes Up to Scratch is in front of me. It's um, been put together by Environment Victoria and Anne Martinelli is one of the authors and it's really great to have you on Triple R. Anne, welcome. Thank you. And, uh, me. Yeah, so we've heard some great initiatives over the weekend. Uh, state governments made some announcements, um, some of which I just mentioned there. What are your thoughts? Well, look, they're all really essential and um, useful steps forward. I mean, they're um, essential consumer protections, basically, for renters. Um, what we're talking about in, in our report is the whole question of standards, the whole question of there being a basic minimum quality that a rental home needs to meet before it can be legally leased, um, both for health, health and safety reasons. Um, you know, you'd be amazed actually at the, the horror stories of, you know, rental homes that are just basically not meeting community, you know, acceptable community standards for habitation. But what we're particularly interested in as an environment organisation is the whole question of the efficiency performance of homes, um, particularly given rising energy prices and, and the need to tackle climate change. And so, I mean, your report goes a lot into why homes should be more energy efficient and uh, essentially insulated mm-hmm. and things like that. I mean, how bad can some of these homes be? Well, look, yeah, as you say, insulation um, is the obvious thing that makes the biggest difference, not just to, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's the, one of the things that makes the biggest difference to energy waste. Um, basically, the costly energy that we're spending heaps of money on blowing straight out of our windows and doors. Now, the data's not fantastic, but um, the best estimates that we've got is that there could be as much as um, 25% of rental homes that have no insulation at all. Um, and maybe another 50% that could do with an upgrade. So that's potentially, um, you know, a, a significant proportion of our rental properties that... And this, and the problem is a lot of efficiency stuff that has a big impact is pretty invisible. So, you know, when, when we talk about um, rental homes, um, you know, a lot of them who, in otherwise good condition, um, a lot of them are actually... If, pretty inefficient. In a, in a 15 minute inspection you don't get to climb in the roof No, for that's right yeah and you know even landlords that um, want to be doing the right thing by their tenants might not think about even sticking their head in the ceiling space to see um, if there's insulation there so the advantage of standards is it will actually just prompt a bit of a focus on things that otherwise might get neglected but in fact have a, a really big impact on quality of life and affordability for renters. And so energy bills are a big one we're hearing mm. the the federal government uh, pulling in retailers trying to make them do something i wonder if this is a blind spot for governments that actually looking at housing stock and improving the the performance of housing is something that is kind of in the too hard basket well look i i think blind spot is actually a really good way of describing it i mean we um all of the discussion about energy that's been going on for the last year in particular is really focused on both the supply side like you know where is our electricity coming from um rather than demand like what can we do to be, um, you know, cutting waste, yep. but also on price rather than cost. So one of the, the obvious things you can do if prices are rising is cut your consumption or at least eliminate waste to keep your bills affordable. So I think 
you know, that, that whole question of efficiency um, really has been overlooked, I think, in the in the debate. But also, um, and so that means that, you know, basically our, our homes and businesses, um, whatever energy they're wasting, that is a really quick and easy way to be cutting our emissions and cutting bills while we transition to renewable energy. Uh, speaking with uh, Anne Mountanelli, she's efficiency campaigner at Environment Victoria, talking about ways to bring rental houses up to scratch. And energy prices affect everybody, not mm. just those that rent. But why are they? Why are renters particularly vulnerable in this area? Anne? Well, it's it's there's a um, I guess a market failure, well um, acknowledged example of. Um, a market failure problem called the split incentive, which is basically that if you're a homeowner um, and you're worried about rising bills, you can do something about it. You can put insulation in the ceiling um, and you're going to see the benefit of that um, in hopefully cutting waste and, and lowering your bills. If you're a renter... Um, it's the tenant that's paying the bills, but it's the landlord that's responsible for the, the quality of the building. So um, there, it really isn't a voluntary incentive for landlords to do much about it, even those landlords that, that do want to do the right thing by their tenants. Um, we know that um, when voluntary schemes um, and rebates and subsidies are made available, by and large, landlords don't take advantage of them. And, and why is that? Do we know why? Because we have had quite a few over the years, haven't we, you know, that you, you can can get subsidised yep. um, work on on your rental property and the like. Well, look, I think again, partly it goes back to the blind spot that we were talking about before. Efficiency is a bit invisible; it's not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind. I think it's partly, um, you know, often a landlord may want to do something that they perceive as um, adding to the value of their property. So we've we've had lots of stories from people we've spoken to where a landlord, you know, in complaining about a house being too hot or too cold, um, a landlord will offer to put in an air conditioning system, which the tenant it can't actually afford to use because there's no insulation in the roof. So I think it's a combination of those things. Um, and so what we're saying is if there were some basic minimum things that every home needed to have in place before it could be leased, it would just take that whole um, variability out of the equation and really um, basically give tenants a bit of a product warranty assurance. I mean, basically tenants are spending, you know, where else in the Victorian economy would you spend something like $20,000 a year on a product for zero sort of product quality assurance? And we have we have star ratings mm. on our appliances. We've yep. got star ratings on water fittings and, and, and things like this. Yeah. And, and the ACT has uh, mandatory disclosure for rental properties. And we also see it in the commercial area, don't we, that if you're about to rent a property out, the, the, the landlord, um, if it's a commercial lease, needs to tell you the mm. estimated energy consumption. So we're seeing it in some parts of the market. Is it resistance from government or industry groups or the real estate lobby that is going to prevent this from happening for rental properties? Um, look, I think it's it's a combination of the fact that this is the first real, really serious look at our whole tenancy legal framework in Victoria for quite a while. So, you know, we've got a backlog of all of the sort of really no-brainer issues uh, such as were announced over the weekend that the government, you know, is addressing, which is great. Um, but also, um, yes, of course, there's always pushback against the idea of, of additional regulation from certain parts of the community. Um, but um, what we're saying is that while uh, schemes like 
disclosure are really valuable. Um, basically, you know, giving tenants more information about the quality of a, a home that they, they might rent. In a really tight rental market like Melbourne, where renters really don't have a lot of luxury to pick and choose, you don't always see that variation in particularly efficiency quality reflected in, in rents or desirability. Basically, landlords can rent out, you know, pretty poor quality properties without any worries. So we're sort of saying we need to go beyond disclosure. We actually need to make some basic things mandatory. Um, and that will then ensure that, as I said, you know, you, those basic things are not something that get horse traded in some sort of negotiation between parties, which are, you know, there's some pretty unequal power relationships, I guess, between landlords and renters. Yeah. And I mean, you know, looking internationally, uh, where people have rented long term and permanently mm. for a long time and people can stay in the same rental property for 10 years, 20 years or longer and have intergenerational family members actually staying in mm. rental properties. Do you see us going in that direction? Because certainly people are renting longer than they used to. Yeah, I think, and, and getting back to your previous question, I think also part yeah. of the reason why there's been resistance to these sorts of ideas is because of just our our community's different perception of renting. As you say, you know, in other countries it's a very mainstream um lifelong um option for people um we've often we've tended to think about renting as a sort of marginal and temporary problem you know the you know seriously you can be cold for a couple of years yeah you you know you're a student what the hell you'll grow up and then buy a house and i mean that's never been the reality for a significant um section of our community anyway but increasingly so now so i think we actually do need to change our perception of renting and acknowledge that um that for now yeah one in one in three um, households, renting is a perfectly, um, you know, reasonable um, option, and that and that it needs to be um, something. It, it needs to be considered uh, a quality, long term. Uh, tenure option where people can be guaranteed a decent quality of life. So Environment Victoria is uh, advocating for rights in this area, trying to get, as you say, some uh, base level minimums for the, the quality of rental properties. But are, are we likely to see that happen in this sort of tranche of, of reforms that are being announced by the state government? Well, look, we're hopeful. Um, when the government, the government's been consulting with a range of groups over the last 12 months, we've been part of that process. Uh, in January, they released an options paper which discussed the pol- possibility of standards. Um, at the moment, they're describing them as, um, basic minimum standards for health and safety that would really cover those very poor quality properties that we talked about before um you know maybe 10 to 15 percent of of our entire rental housing stock that are really basically unlivable um what we want to see is efficiency included in those standards um and that will in fact um ultimately benefit a larger proportion of of renters but what we're saying is um that we should start um start low start at a really achievable level it might just be insulation and draft ceiling we still have we need to think about water at the same time you know there's um never a guarantee that we'll not have another drought so there's still 20 percent of rental homes that don't have a dual flush toilet um so but start low but then gradually um tighten those standards over time so that ultimately all renters are benefiting from a, a more efficient home and look we're hopeful that done in that way 
um, that uh, do, that avoids sort of sudden shocks to the market. We'll avoid problems with renting increases and risks of evictions. So we're hopeful that the government will consider that. And anything renters can do now in uh, lieu of these changes uh, to improve their lot, I suppose, you know, taking uh, advice and, and going and renegotiating your energy bills is, is one place to start? Yeah, that's one place to start. Um, you know, we're obviously a campaigning organisation, so jumping on our website and sending a, an email to um, their MP is also another way of um, letting the government know that there are people out there that uh, will welcome this reform if they um, if they take action. Um, and, you know, there, there are, um, so, you know, plenty of stories of renters who've taken matters into their own hands and done basic things like draft sealing themselves. Um, we would obviously like um, that not to be something that renters have to do themselves because, um, you know, you're often not in a house long enough to, to recover the costs of that. But nevertheless, there are a bunch of pretty cheap things you can do like um, sealing around uh, windows or, sh- or shading windows that will make a difference if people are in a position to be able to afford those sorts of things. Good advice leading into summer. Thanks so much, Anne, for coming in. Uh, Anne Montanelli has uh, is one of the team at Environment Victoria that's put together a report called Bringing Rental Homes Up to Scratch and uh, we'll keep you uh, abreast with any other state government announcements. I understand there's going to be more rental reforms coming our way but uh, at least over the weekend, good news for those with pets because uh, it looks like you will no longer miss out on properties because you've got them. Girls and to a lesser degree boys are going through puberty earlier than a couple of generations ago and it's now more common than ever for children to be well into puberty by grade four or five and that's around nine or ten years of age but even though this shift is obvious to teachers and parents and raising all sorts of issues for young people themselves, not much has changed in the way that we prepare children for the inevitable body changes they're going to experience. Amanda Dunn thinks we can and should be doing better in this area and she's uh, written a book called The New Puberty. She's politics and society editor for The Conversation and uh, is on the phone and thanks Amanda for being there and I, I suppose it'd be good to sort of set up why it is that you wanted to write about or investigate the research into puberty. Yeah, look, thanks very much for having me. Um, So I was a reporter for The Age for 16 years and um, education and health were two of my sort of areas of specialisation. And as a health reporter 15 years ago, I was starting to write stories about children going through puberty earlier. And it just struck me as a particularly interesting area, but also... Um, when I spoke to some of the experts in the area, particularly at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, um, they were saying that they believe that it's a really neglected time of life, that as parents we kind of think, oh, puberty's just something, oh, we just have to get through it and hope that everybody emerges unscathed at the end of it. But it's a really, really significant time of life. And it, quite obviously, it's your sexual maturation, but it also is very important emotionally and socially and psychologically as we sort of change from children to adults. Um, and then, you know, more recently, I, I had my own little girl um, and I started to wonder about how this experience of puberty would be for her. And I took a really good look at all the research that we have on puberty, um, which, by the way, is not really uh, anywhere near enough in anywhere near enough detail. We need much more attention paid to it. But what we what we do know is that is that girls in particular, but also boys, uh, are going through a starting puberty earlier than they ever were. So that um, 
for the Australian um, longitudinal study of Australian children, which is a very good, very good and very wide-ranging study, shows us that um, by around eight or nine years of age, 40% of, of children are showing some sign of, of puberty development. So that's really middle primary years and it's it's quite young. Um, and a lot of schools, the problem is that a lot of schools start their sex education at around grade six. Now that to me is far too late these days because we know that by then more than half the girls already have their period. That's a very late stage of puberty, not an early one. So to be telling them about what's going to happen to them during puberty when they've already been through it is, is just way too late. And yeah, that's part it's of the not, reason why I wrote the book. Yes, it's it's not really going to necessarily engage a whole lot of them if they've been there, done that. But before we get on to to what what we can be doing about it, I mean, you mentioned that you speak to health professionals, but puberty per se isn't necessarily a sort of a, a medical or, or health issue. I mean, for it's a natural process that people go through. Obviously, there's those that go through it much earlier and and perhaps too early for their bodies. But for for this kind of shift, how how much earlier is it shifting for the kind of average kid how many years or, or months earlier are we seeing puberty begin well that's a, that's quite a hard question to answer but what, what we do know is that by around eight or nine years of age about a quarter of the girls have started to develop breasts so that's the middle middle primary years um, and we know that from some very good overseas studies particularly out of Copenhagen and also from the United States, that puberty has probably dropped around, you know, a couple of, a couple, about about a, an entire year, so the start of puberty um, for girls. There's, there's, less, there's less good research for boys, unfortunately, and boys are just a bit harder to measure because they don't have so many obvious external signs of puberty as girls do. Um, but there's no question, and you know, this is all what you, you talk to principals and teachers and doctors, and they'll all tell you the same thing that um, they're seeing very young children starting puberty. Now, there's nothing much we can do about that. I mean, part of that is probably to do with the obesity epidemic we find ourselves in, and, and perhaps also to do with some environmental toxins. Um, but what we can do, I guess, is to, is to tell them more about it, to give them better information so that they, they can go through it with, with less trauma and with, with good quality, age-appropriate information. And nutrition is also potentially a, a part of why, uh, why puberty or the, the, the beginnings of it are shifting earlier. That's right. So, uh, you know, about 150, 200 years ago, around the time of industrialisation, the girls, um, first period started at around 16 and a half and today it's around 12 and a half. So that's, that's a big shift on a population level of four years over that time. And a lot of that is, is for good reasons because we have better nutrition and also because of, uh, we've reduced the risk of ch uh, childhood infections which delayed puberty. But we're sort of, you know, um, tipping the, the scales in the other direction now because we are collectively overweight and we know that there's a relationship between body fat and um, the onset of puberty. So there's no question that obesity is playing a role in children's earlier development. Um, and also, as I mentioned, there's, there's increasing sort of body of evidence around environmental toxins that can mimic the effects of uh, the key sort of sex hormones, estrogen and testosterone. And we speak a lot um, as a as a community about the effects of digital technology on children, and I suppose that they they've got access to more information really than they ever have before. But what do we know about the effects of uh, earlier puberty on our children? 
Well, I think from that, I mean, that's sort of what I tried to look at when I when I wrote the book was to look at that big picture thing. So yes, there's the physical development, but one of the worrying things about it is that it's simply not keeping pace pace with children's emotional and psychological development and part of that is the online world and we're all really aware of some of the the dangers associated with that as well as the fact that it's an inevitable part of life and children have to learn how to be you know digitally savvy to use the internet and and there's a lot of really great things about the internet but I guess one thing we, we, we don't want is children having access to pornography at a very young age because we wouldn't want them to think that that represents a normal sort of sexual relationship. Um, and we also don't want kids turning to the internet to find out what's happening to them during puberty because we all know that that's a really unreliable source. So they may come across some good information or they may come across total rubbish, to be perfectly frank. So... The antidote to that is, you know, I keep I keep sort of coming back to this, but it's really important, is that we have better and mandatory um, and age-appropriate sex education from primary school because by the time they get to even grade six, it's just too late. Yeah, and we get so much pushback, uh, don't we, Amanda, on sexuality education, I think it's called in, in schools now, about bringing it to those earlier ages. And we, we know what happened with the, with the Safe Schools program as well about trying to provide uh, quality information to children at the right time. And education educationalists uh, often have a good radar for when that appropriate time is. But how do we... Uh, bring it to those younger ages when we do often get pushback from from families mm. and and other people that it's too early or we don't want to uh, give a whole lot of information out to kids when they're when they're not ready to hear it. Yeah, that that's a really great question. And look, there seems to be this sort of um, misguided idea that if you tell kids about what happens to them and their sexual development, they're going to go out and want to have sex. And there's absolutely no evidence to back that that up. In fact. We, there's good evidence to show that high-quality sex education, in fact, delays, um, you know, the first sexual experience later on in their lives. So there is all this sort of stuff about children losing their innocence or whatever. It, I mean, that's to me, that's sort of nonsense, really. I mean, it's because we're so uncomfortable with this idea of of children maturing, of their burgeoning sort of sexuality. If we, as adults, were better at talking about it and more... Um, comfortable talking about it then we would we would be much better at passing that on to young people and helping them to feel more comfortable with it so I mean certainly during the research for the book a lot of principals talked to me about how difficult it was that there was always a small but vocal um, minority who who were uncomfortable with it and very similar on a national level to the safe schools debate as you said so I think what can do. I mean, first of all, we need leadership from government on this. The UK earlier this year, which also has a conservative government, said, "Okay, sex education is now going to be compulsory in all schools, um, and that's mandated from a federal level." Now, we really need to do the same thing here. It is part of the national curriculum, but states implement that at various rates. So that means that some kids can go all the way through school without a single sex ed class. That's still the case in Australia. In Victoria, it's better because the um, the state government is, has been pretty proactive and strong on this. Um, but I think what needs to happen is we need leadership from government and then principals uh, really need to be just brave themselves about it, inform parents, hold information sessions and talk about puberty as a fundamental part of the curriculum the same way that maths and English is because that to me is what it is. Kids have a right to know this stuff 
and we collectively have a responsibility to tell them about it. And I mean, what's your sense after writing this book of of where we're at with that? Is it is this uh, on you know is it on the horizon or is it a lot closer in focus? Are we likely to see this kind of move in Australia? Uh, look, it's all over the place at the moment. To be perfectly frank with you, and I think the safe schools debate, if I can call it that, has set us back quite a long way. There was just so much misinformation and hysteria around that. Um, states still pretty much do their own thing, which is a bit of a pity. It needs to be much more centrally coordinated and insisted upon. I can't see that happening in the very near future, to be honest. I wish it would, but I can't see it happening. Um, perhaps down the track, if there's a change of government, uh, we might get some sort of more courageous policy decisions around that. Um, but it really does need to come from government. And the other important thing is that it does need designated funding so that principals are not scratching around in their school global budget to to teach sex ed on top of everything else. That the government says to them, look, this is really important. We know kids are going through puberty earlier. We need to um, educate them because we know some parents will do it, some parents won't. Some parents will have the best intentions in the world and still not have good information. Um, so it's the school's responsibility to do it. Um, here's money. Um, you know, you you work out how you how you want to do it, whether it's someone internally or you bring in an outside expert. But um, every child, every child should have mandated sex ed from the middle primary school years. Well, let's see if they're listening, Amanda. Thank you so much for um, joining us on Triple <laughs> R. And, um, and congratulations so on your book. Uh, uh, Amanda's book is called The New Puberty. Amanda Dunn is uh, a politics and society editor for The Conversation. And, uh, it, yeah, it's an interesting read, especially if you're looking for ways to speak to your child about puberty or you've got uh, you know, other family members going through that period of their life. And I suppose it's curious around the research into puberty and early onset puberty in particular. Uh, it's a really well-researched book um, out through University of Melbourne Press. It- this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.